the reading tonight is taken from um, Matthew 20. But if you want to stay in a state of medita- uh, meditation, please do, or, or in prayer, and just um, allow God's word to um, speak to you. If you do want to follow, it's in the church Bibles on page uh, 988, starting at verse 17. Now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. On the way, he took the twelve aside and said to them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief of priests and to the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and, kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine mine may sit on your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they shouted, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet. But they shouted all the louder, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus stopped and called them. What, what do you want me to do for you? He asked. Lord, they answered, we want our sight. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Immediately they received their sight and followed him. These are the words of the Lord. I pray before I start. Father, we ask that we would hear your words. Father, that you would speak to us in the deep places and bring us closer to you. Amen. I read these three apparently separate stories and thought that they were separate events. And then I read them again and realised that actually it's no coincidence that they're put together. It's no coincidence that Jesus declares that he will die and rise again, so changing the course of history and changing everything, creation and mankind's destiny. 
And it's that moment when everything seems to ratchet up a notch and infighting and power battles start to emerge. Oh, and just for good measure, in a prophetic and profound act of grace, the blind are then able to see. In fact, to take them as separate and unconnected acts would mean missing the impact of what Jesus is saying. In this passage, there are two questions that, to me, contain some of the essence, some of what Jesus is trying to to get over. And uh, these questions might give us some help in getting to grips with it. They are, of course, interrelated, but we'll deal with them separately, even though they're very dependent on each other. The first one, excuse me, what do you want me to do for you? I don't know about you, but I find it quite stunning that the God of creation, the one whose spirit roamed over the unformed firmament, the one who threw the stars into the sky, who we are told in Psalm 119 and in Proverbs knows our most intimate parts and being, is capable of inspiring such a love song as is contained in the Song of Solomon. He's asking, what do you want me to do for you? Is he really puzzled or is he having a crisis? Or maybe it suggests something else. I think Jesus is looking deep into their souls at this moment. He wants them to relate to to him in a very honest and open way. He really doesn't want a conversation about the weather. Although there's a quickening of the pace here, there's a new determination as he turns his face towards his ultimate death and resurrection. But there's also a calmness and an assurance about this question. There's no doubt about who is in control. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked both James and John's mother and the blind men what it is they want him to do for them. And I find this really interesting. Often we're told in encounters with people that Jesus knew exactly what was on their heart. And surely it would seem obvious to everyone that blind people want their sight, wouldn't it? The brother's mother was worried for her sons. She'd heard Jesus predict his death, but was thinking ahead already. They'd given up everything for Jesus. Probably followers of Jesus knew they would no longer be welcomed back into the temple with open arms. And in that society, that could mean no business, no job, no income either. At this stage, it seems they were still expecting Jesus to be rescued in glory, overpower the Romans and become king. The blind men would have been really low on the social scale, beneath the dignity of the Son of God. But even so, on his way to the cross, Jesus stops to heal them. Perhaps the disciples, still not understanding, don't want Jesus troubled with lowly blind men. They're off for a triumphant entry into Jerusalem. Often the means of survival for blind people was begging. 
Blindness would have robbed people of their dignity and independence, as it does in some parts of the world today. And yet Jesus, on his way to save the world, when he had every reason to have his mind on higher and more important things, stops, turns to these blind people and asks them what he can do for them. Of course, there's metaphor here, (coughs) as the blind men, (coughs) excuse me, are the ones who see how Jesus really is. Whereas James and John's mother clearly doesn't get it. The men, in their blindness, have been unable to build up an image of Christ as they want him to be. But the brother's mother saw Jesus quite clearly and was unable to understand him. Perhaps she had Jesus in her own image. Despite everything, she wants power and status for her sons. And the disciples don't get it either, as they get cross when they discover what's happened. They've all missed the point. In their ambition and struggle, they have failed to find Christ. What do you want me to do for you? This is the place of radical love. Love that the world doesn't know or understand. The place of sharing and communion with God, of welcome into the Trinity. We have a choice. We can pursue the God we think we know, the one who might be demanding and difficult, who perhaps reflects our experience of the world, the one we've built up for ourselves, the one who's in our own image. Or we can pursue God who's revealed to us in Jesus, who loves us unconditionally and asks us what we want him to do for us. What I'd like to do is to have perhaps five minutes now with just uh, either if you want to spend time on your own in prayer or in twos or threes. I'd suggest probably not more than threes or fours because otherwise it'll take too long. And just share what it is we need God to do for us tonight. What it is we feel the answer to that question might be for us. Please feel free to move your chairs around or sit on your own if you would rather do that. Can I draw us back, please? There is, of course, another question in this passage, which is just as difficult and just as deep. Jesus asks the mother of James and John, can you drink the cup that I am going to drink? Our God is amazing, He is wonderful, full of love and grace, justice and peace. I think, you'll be glad to know, being a Christian is a fantastic, exciting, joyful and at times exhilarating experience. But sometimes it can be difficult and painful and lonely and a real struggle. Sometimes... We learn about the struggle of dying to ourselves. The cup here that Jesus is talking about 
is the cup of suffering. In Isaiah, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, the cup these passages talk of is what happens when God, grieving over the wickedness of his people, steps in to punish punish the oppressors and the greedy. It's as though God's holy anger is turned into sour wine. They'll be forced to drink the cup to experience the wrath of God who loves the weak and the helpless. The shock of this passage is that Jesus speaks of drinking this cup himself. Both John and James would have known what the cup meant. The idea that they too could share in the suffering of Christ wasn't made in ignorance. They would have been aware of the Old Testament scriptures. But death, it seems, didn't feature in the disciples' understanding of the Messiah. They were too full of their ideas of power and glory. But Jesus is talking of his own suffering. The way Jesus is about to go is hard. He was under no illusions. This is the third time he's predicted his death. The crucifixion wasn't an accident brought on him by surprise as his mission to rule the world failed as some apologists for Dawkins would have us believe. Jesus had completely surrendered to the Father's will and was willingly going to the cross for us. His betrayal was total. Both Jews and Gentiles turned against him. But Jesus also talks about his resurrection, his death followed by life. The road to glory must go through Calvary for those who follow Christ. Suffering will often come before the glory. Suffering was integral to the work of the Messiah. Disciples, in surrendering to Christ, also embrace the willingness to walk the path of suffering and death for Christ's sake. We only have to look to the suffering of the early church and medieval saints to see how suffering has brought understanding to the church of Christ. The reason Julian of Norwich was able to say, all will be well and all manner of things will be well, is because she had understood the pain of Jesus and also his redemptive power. She had had visions of his pain and suffering. I know we in England don't have to worry about martyrdom, but we do have to go through wilderness times, times when we have to learn not to listen to our own ego, but to allow God into our work and to our lives. And to remember that without death, there is no resurrection. Our journeys can be difficult. Excuse me. Forged in the deep place of death to ourselves and allowing God into our pain. I was once a chairman of a charity. It was a great job and I loved it bits. I really did genuinely wake up in the morning and think this was the job I was born for. But the CEO and I were very similar characters. When we did that Belkin personality analysis, we were almost identical. 
Both of us were full of ideas and enthusiasm, and both of us fairly strong characters with fairly strong opinions. Sometimes, most of the time, it was a really energising place to work. But other times, we clashed. Near the end of my time there, it wasn't unknown for us to have stand-up rows and to argue at trustees' meetings. We both had lost sight of why we were there. Egos had got in the way. I spent an incredibly painful weekend talking to God about what we were doing. I knew I had a clear choice. I knew God was asking me to leave. I had no clear plan for what next, and it felt like a bereavement. I could have forced the issue. I could have chosen to stay and risked completely destroying the work of the charity. Or I could lose my ego, leave the most fantastic and exciting job I've ever had, and submit to the will of God. It was no easy choice, but by the end of it, I knew I had to leave. I'm telling you this not as an example of how fantastic I am. If I'd been that fantastic, it would never have got to the point it did, quite frankly. But because we all face choices, some of them will be big ones, and some of them small. And we can choose whether to die to our own selves and allow God in. If we do, Jesus will be right there with you and will lead you on into even more fantastic things, stuff you can never imagine. His grace is greater than any suffering or sacrifice we might make. I'm going to give you another few minutes Again, you can either sit on your own and think and pray, or you can talk with, with others. The choice is absolutely yours. And it may be worth asking the questions again. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? There's a cup here in the front. If you think it would help, and there is absolutely no pressure to do this, as a gesture of your commitment, when you're ready please feel free to go forward and take a sip. It's quite sour, I just warn you. (laughs) Quite deliberately sour. So please feel free to either sit on your own and think through it and pray or chat in groups.